a series called Momentum Killers. Momentum Killers. There are subtle, sneaky things, habits, some sinful, some not helpful, that if going unchecked will rob you of ongoing intimacy in your relationship with God. We have kind of this goal and ambition that God in our midst over the summer would build momentum into the fall in our individual relationships with God in a way that would overflow into the corporate proclamation of the gospel in our community. I think God is setting us up to be a part of him doing something remarkable through us for his glory and his renown. We're not going to get famous off of it. There won't be a book deal in it for us, but his name's going to get known in this community and in this city in some powerful ways. I was deeply encouraged. Uh, I got a text message last night. We did our first big outreach of the summer a couple of weeks ago. We wrote 130 handwritten letters, packed gift baskets, and encouraged uh, the 130 DSS employees of Spartanburg County. And one of those employees walked by a a house that had a four-point sign in it, and they went and told them, hey, that meant a lot to me that you guys took the time to encourage me. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. We've got several other outreaches coming up this week. In fact, if you want to get involved in uh, an organized way, a planned way by your local church to be a blessing to the community and proclaim the gospel there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 9. Uh, had an incredible week at camp. God just showed up in a powerful way. How many of you w- went to a youth camp when you were growing up? Like you had a camp experience, you know? Like first day you come in cold. By the end of it, like you're like just on this spiritual high, you're like you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol or just spit in your mouth, like I'm, I'm going to go and get them, pa, 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 you know, <laughs> like you're ready. And, and, and there's a lot of good intentions that come out of camps because there's a lot of mile marker moments that happen at camps. Maybe you haven't been to camp, but you've had a mile marker moment with God where you look back and you're like, man, in that moment, God practically, uh, in a unique way, grabbed me, met with me, changed the direction and the trajectory of my life. Billy Graham had one of those at a camp in Southern California that I got to visit. They put a rock there to uh, mark the supposed spot where Billy Graham surrendered to a call to evangelism and to go to the nations. And because of Billy Graham's obedience in that mile marker moment to then go and proclaimed the gospel, my father set in a Billy Graham crusade and gave his life to Jesus, which changed the trajectory of my father's life, which then I was born into a family that had its trajectory changed by a mile marker moment in Billy Graham's life that impacted a mile marker moment in my father's life that led me being raised up in a family that knew the Lord and taught me of the ways of the Lord as a young kid, which was a mile marker in my life. And so some of you, maybe you have one of those moments. Rio and I walked on to the camp down at Garden City Chapel this past weekend, and he pointed at a building in the center of that camp, and he said, in that room right there, Carl Carty led worship when I was in youth group. Carl Carty may not mean much to you, but he's a big deal to me and Rio. And uh, he's like, he led worship in that room, and and that, that, that experience was a mile marker moment for him to where he points back and looks at that building and goes, man, I met with God that week in that room right there. How many of you have had one of those, right? And you come out of it, and we have great intentions to change. We have great intentions that who we were before that moment will not be the same person that we walk back to being after that moment. But I've experienced the frustration of leaving mile marker moments only to be the same person within three months. I've left mile marker moments not experiencing the continuation of the momentum, but the deadening of the momentum whenever I went back into the real life with real problems and real temptations and real troubles that I 
faced. And so we're in a series called Momentum Killers, and I want to look at a text that met me after the mile marker and helped me change my habits so that I could build momentum from the marker instead of lose momentum until the next marker came. Does that make sense? That's my goal for you. I hope this summer, in some way, you have a mile marker moment. I hope that God meets with you in a powerful way through his word or around the people of God in a way that grabs you. It it changes the trajectory of your life, the way that you husband, the way that you parent, the way that you lead, the way that you work, the way that you neighbor, the way that you love God would uniquely change, not, not because of manipulation of man, but because of a moment where you met with God and things changed. I, I want you to have a mile marker moment, but if you're going to change out of the mile marker, you're going to have to launch into a new way of living. There are going to have to be new habits that take root. And old habits die hard, don't they? Hmm. I mean, you read a parenting book and you're ready. You get some focus on the family in you and you're like, we're changing everything. (laughs) Three weeks later, they're on a tablet, they're watching YouTube influencers, and you're thinking, ah, you know, I need a little peace. (laughs) Just trying to be honest. may not be your story, but it's mine. It takes around 28 days to change a habit. 28 days of consistently doing something different before it becomes natural to you to do it. And what we love about mile marker moments is they're effortless. What we hate to hear about mile marker moments is they often take a lot of intentionality for change to root. For some of you, you've got a great call in your life, but you've not launched. For some of you, you've had a mile marker moment and God's given you clarity in your life, but you've not launched. I believe the Bible teaches us how in this one verse of Luke chapter 9. It hangs in my house and will hang in my house to the day that I die. I treat it kind of like the Rudy moment when you're walking through the tunnel of Notre Dame and you slap it, play like a champion today. Mine is Luke 9.23. My live like a champion moment. My live like a believer moment. My walk like a believer moment. It's Luke 9.23. Let's look at the text with me. Jesus In the 23rd verse of Luke chapter 9 says this. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It's so simplistic. It's not necessarily sexy. It's not the most, like, ooh moment when you read it. But I think within it lies the power for the transformation that you seek and long for in your life. If you want to make a big deal and a difference for Christ, in this is, I think, the prescriptive measures that are called for for that to happen. Now, let me break it down into two parts. There's an invitation, and then there's an application. We get an invitation on the front end, and it's revolutionary in who the invitation is extended to, and then we get an application on the back end that has three parts to it because I still have enough Baptist in me to where everything comes in threes, or maybe that's just the way God works. I don't know. There's three things I see in the text, though. The invitation is this, to a crowd of people who are wavering and waning in their allegiance to God, Jesus looks at them as many are leaving, as many are finding it difficult to follow, and he says, if any one of you, man or woman, rich or poor, no matter your background, starting point, or family, if any of you in the crowd want to follow me. So the invitation's extended, 
Not because Jesus is eliminating people going, well, you know, it's going to be too hard and you're all going to fall away. But the invitation is extended to everyone. If any one of you want to come, you can come. If any of you want to follow, you can follow. And so here's what's amazing to me about our Savior. He invites anyone who would believe to come. He invites anyone who would follow to follow him. The invitation goes to the crowd. It goes to everyone, but it is received by few in the crowd. Why do so few receive it? Well, let's be honest. This Christian thing is hard. Holiness is a fight, not natural. And every single day you wake up, and if you want to live holy, it's a fight. It, it doesn't seem to come without a battle that you have to daily cash in and fight. In fact, I was reading in a commentary around St. Luke, around the idea of this invitation that Jesus extends, and in that commentary it said this, um, let that man that desires to come after Jesus be prepared to give up earthly ease and comfort. It's the opposite of many of the messages and sermons we preach. For a lot of us, we have this tension that's set in most of our churches. One tension is we're going to make it so hard that uh, we're going to overemphasize the pain and the struggle, and we're never going to smile, and we're never going to be free in the Lord, and we're never going to enjoy Jesus. If you ever smile on this side of eternity, then you must be a sinner because you're enjoying the wor world too much. And on the, on the other side, there's this idea that we could have a faith or a Christianity that doesn't face persecution, difficulty, and hardship, that you'll always, through three application points, find a life of ease and the Christian life achievable with just the small assist from the Holy Spirit, but not a complete dependency upon the work of God in your life. Both miss the mark. The mark is it is a good life, it's the best life, and it's also a difficult life, and it's not an easy life. And that's what this quote gets to. Let the man that be prepared to go after Jesus, to give up, be prepared to give up earthly ease and comfort, be ready to bear the sufferings which will be sure to fall on him if he struggles after holiness, because it will be that. It will be a struggle. Holiness will not be natural. The Christian life is not an easy life, so the invitation goes to all, but few receive it. Many can talk about God, but few have experienced personal relationship with God. Many speak of moves of God, they point to and even quote scripture about God, but let me remind you, so do the demons who have fallen out of the heavens in rebellion against him, twisting and manipulating it to their agenda to make it work for their lifestyle, but with no actual desire to surrender and submit. And for many a believer, we've been deceived into thinking that the Word of God is there to affirm what we feel and think and desire at all times, when in actuality, there are many times where what you feel and think is a feeling and a desire, but it is not the truth, and it's not what the Word has called you to, and you've been called to something greater than a feeling and greater than a moment. But for many of us, we never get past the feeling and the moment, and so we're lost in our emotions, not walking the narrow path that God has called us to, which he said this is what the Christian life would look like. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 promises that if we enter God's kingdom... There's only going to come through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and the gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. I've read that verse a lot in my life, and I used to think that the reason the Christian life was so hard was that every one of us were on a single-file line path that's so difficult that there's no room for anyone to be at our side. And so perhaps why many of us struggle is because we have an idea that the Christian life is really an isolated life, and while you have other people that are on the surface with you, church people don't really get below the surface to be a community alongside you. And so you have ministry events you show up to, and you have gifts that you give the church, and talents, and passions, and 
interests that help others, but there's no real deep community of someone being beside you. I just want to encourage you with the fact that the Christian life is a narrow life, it's a difficult life, it's a warring life, it's a battle for holiness, but it's not an isolated life. Jesus walked this road before us isolated, forsaken, so that you and I would not be. He promised to give us his Holy Spirit so that in the moments where we feel isolated, we would know that we are empowered by the Spirit when the physical presence of other believers is not around us. So you're never forsaken, you're never forgotten. God is always with you and he is at work supplying you with everything you need for every good work he's called you to in every moment you face. So God is with you, so you're not alone. It's not a path of isolation. But number two, and I want you to get this, it's not a path of isolation because God gave you a community called the church that is a peculiar group of spirit-filled believers that walk alongside you, dividing the burden of discipleship, multiplying the joy of being in the presence of God, and we are meant to be a community. And, and I have a concern for four points. I have a concern for you, and it's that a lot of you got a lot of community, but it looks more like Hank Williams and less like Jesus. And you show up to church, but you don't have any friends here. You show up to ministry events, but you don't break bread with any of them without the church planning it. It's not community until it's unplanned by the church, and it's happening because of the work of the Spirit in your life. And this is our goal. Like, I, I want you to get to a point where your ministry is not only happening when we plan a ministry, but it's happening because you are a minister, I want you to get to a point where you begin to realize that community is not dependent upon a gathered small group that gathers together weekly, but it's what you do as an overflow of living in the Spirit of God. It's recognizing that God has appointed unique people in your life and around you that walk alongside you in different ways in different seasons. I have a bullpen in my life. I don't have a mentor. A lot of people are like, I just want one good mentor. I don't want one good mentor. I want a bullpen. Because not everyone is, no, no one is perfect in this life. I, there's some people that are really good with their money, and I need believers that are really good at being generous and making a legacy financially in their life to help me from time to time. I know some people that are way wiser than I am when it comes to theology. They, I don't want money advice from some of them because they're terrible. They're, all they do is sit in their house and they read their Bible every day and they're completely content with it, but they don't steward well anything. So I've got someone that's really good financially that loves the Lord in my bullpen. I've got someone that's really good at theology in my bullpen. I've got someone that's really good at being a husband in my bullpen. I've got someone that's really good at parenting in my bullpen. Not one person fills every role. I've got a community around me and I reach into that community for support whenever I need it. And I share my gifts with them. They share their gifts with me and we love each other well. I just want to throw this out there. I didn't. Th this wasn't in first service. Someone need to hear it. Some of y'all run around looking for one mentor. Like, if I could just get Pastor Russ to hang out with me. I'm not that cool. I, I'm not that talented. I have a very narrow lane of what I'm good at. I'm really good at being barefoot and preaching for about an hour. <laughs> get outside of that scope. It gets sketchy quick. Just letting you know. So you're like, oh, that's funny, Pastor Joe. No, I'm dead serious. You get outside the line. I, in the words of uh, the Ball Brothers, I know my lane. I know my lane, right? I'm going to preach the Word of God in a way that's applicable, in a way that's powerful, submitted to the Holy Spirit, hopefully every time by the grace of God, theologically within tune of the whole counsel of Scripture. And I, I, I'm going to call and hopefully motivate and point to you becoming the people of God as you submit to the work of God in your life. But I can't be your whole bullpen. 
And so God gives us a community because it's tough, because life is difficult, because at times you're going to need people who have walked the road you've walked to come alongside you in a season of life and stand and help you through that difficult season you are in. I want us to be a community. Gosh, I want us to be a community. Because communities require less top-down organizational care to function. The other week, um, we had a person in our church who suffered a significant tragedy in their life. It was 13 hours before I got the phone call to know that it had happened. And the only reason I knew it had happened was because the small group of that person who I would gather and say to you is more than a small group. (laughs) They're a community had been in the house all day ministering. See, community's able to move on a dime. It's active. It, 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 it shows up before the professional clergy can, can come in and, you know, pray the prayer. You know, I, it stays longer. It endures through hardship with you. And for some of you, you're going through a season where you need a community of people who love the Lord. And the good news is that's what God has given us in the local church. And it's not easy, and we can't find it for you, but it's here. So here's what I want you to see. The Christian life is an invitation that goes to all. It's a difficult way. It's a narrow way, but it is not a lonely way. God is with you, and he has put believers around you. And if you grab them, break bread with them, I believe that God will supply you with what you need to move forward on the narrow path that he has called you to walk. So we get the invitation. Do you want to go after Jesus? That's the question. About the answer I was expecting on July 3rd. Do you want to go after Jesus? Do you want him? Do you want to experience him in your life and in your family and in your neighborhood? Do you want to experience real revival, not man-made revival? I'm talking the Holy Spirit showing up and doing what you can't identify and explain apart from God did it. Do you want to talk about a move of God or do you want to genuinely experience a move of God? Oh, I want it for you. I want you to experience the real life-changing presence of God through a community of people that are desperate for Jesus in a way that says we'll let go of anything in this world if all we get is you because you're the treasure and you're what we want, right? Like, like do, do you want Jesus? Here's the good news. You can have him. He's made himself available. He's offered himself to whosoever would believe in him. He invites whosoever would take up their cross to follow him. And, and this is a beautiful gift. Jesus has made himself available to doubters and imperfect people like you and me. And he calls us in our mall marker moments to daily do something to prioritize, to make his name known, to gain momentum and not lose momentum. And this is what we see in the application part. Three things. You ready? If anyone will come after me, he must look at the text. Uh, Luke 9, verse 23. But put it back up for me. I, I, I only have it memorized in the ESV, and so I'm not going to quote it in the NLT correctly. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways. So here's the first step. You want to gain momentum from the mile marker moment. You want to experience Jesus in a life rejuvenating revival type way. Then you've got to daily wake up and recognize that there is a selfish way that you wake up focused on. That's not in line with the work of God, the will of God, the way of God. And your natural disposition is to pay attention to it. You see, what this first call is, is a call to, prior- to check your priorities. This denial in verse 23 is a call to step away from yourself as the primary priority of your life, which is what you have before you meet Jesus. Before you meet Jesus, you're the primary priority. Some are like, no, I'm not. Others are. Okay, well, maybe you're the one unique bird, but let me explain why I think you're still a priority. Uh, you have 
all the stuff you have to get done, and your ambition for a lot of you of getting it done is so at the end of the day you can get what? Me time. So if I parent and get them in bed, I get me time. If I have a conversation with my spouse, then I can roll over and have me time. And I'm not trying to tell you that it's a you problem. I'm telling you it's a human problem. All of us are set on ourselves. All of us want to be a God ourselves. All of us want to serve ourselves. And for the majority of us, we live our lives being dictated in the direction in which we move and work based on what we feel and desire most. And your natural inclination is not to desire the things of God or the presence of God or the work of God or the kingdom of God, but to desire your own kingdom and your own self and your own peace above everything else. So the call is to start every day, to start every moment of realizing the priority now that you've become a believer has changed. I used to be preeminent, but I've come to realize that Christ is preeminent. That's the book of Colossians. And since he is preeminent before all things and in all things and works all things for glory and good, he now must become first. So there's this daily moment where I remind myself, I am second. I am not first. I am not preeminent. The reason a lot of you aren't gaining momentum in your relationship with Jesus is you have this professed faith that has not been followed through with a change in priority. So you sing about Jesus being first and at the center of it all. You talk about from your heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center, but at the end of the day, you're still the center because you're still the main priority. You're still the main goal, the main focus. You love to bathe in luxury and treat yourself, and you have way more treat yourself days than they ever had on Parks and Rec. Five people got that. This is not a statement, give up your own way, to say ignore everything you feel, but it is a call to know that Christ comes before feeling. Christ comes before desire. And at times when feeling and desire contradict Christ, it's the predetermined joy and decision of the disciple to lay down both in favor for Jesus. Feelings tell you a lot. For some of you, your feelings are telling you that you're not healthy. You've been running at a pace that you've been calling a season. And if it goes a year, it ain't a season. That's a year. That's a habit. You get four season changes a year, last I checked, in, in some parts of the world. In California, we got spring, summer, spring, summer. <laughs> and so you're tired all the time and you can't get energy. Why? Because your feelings, your body physically is telling you, you're not taking care. That's a good feeling. That's a good thing. Uh, for some of you, you feel disconnected from your spouse. Why? Because you haven't been on a date in like four years. We don't have the budget for it. You got $20 a month for Netflix, then you got the budget to date. You got a priority problem. Your feelings are telling you there's a, something out of whack. Here, here's my point. Here's my point. Feelings aren't everything. There's a tension here. But they aren't to just be dismissed and squashed. And I know many believers who physically kill themselves because they think they just have to ignore, if they feel it, it must be wrong. <laughs> if I feel it, it must be wrong. Not necessarily. And on the other side, there's another group that if they feel it, it must be right. That's the stupidity of earth. It's called adventures and missing the point. <laughs> Between these two, 
There's these feelings God gave you, these desires he put within you. And yes, they can be hijacked by sin, and you need the Spirit of God to help you recognize whenever you're being hijacked by sin and temptation. But they also have been given to you so that you would pay attention to God. So that when you feel empty, you wouldn't run to another job or a bigger raise or a bigger house or a bigger boat or a bigger RV, but you would recognize that feeling is saying, look up! So that you would cry out, I need you! Right? That's a good thing. God made it. It's a good thing. Sin hijacked it, and we now miss the point. So the the idea is not to be run by our feelings and desires, not to be ignorant of our feelings and desires, but to know that our feelings and desires are second to Christ, who now is preeminent over our lives. I've laid this out before, but it's amazing to me that many of us with priority issues and problems find ourselves constantly lacking what we need for the relationships we have, and then we come to God, who's the least of these priorities, with no time at the end of the day, with no time to sit at his feet and enjoy him, with no time to actually give our attention and our affection towards him. And the reason is because Jesus has become a minor priority. What's also amazing is when Jesus becomes the preeminent priority, in your life, you find yourself supplied for every other relationship that comes after it. I'm a better husband when Jesus is the preeminent authority. In fact, the only reason husbands and wives are supposed to abstain and kind of withdraw for a period of time is to be what? Devoted and focused on Christ. Knowing that in the presence of God they get what they need and then come back and be together as... I'm a better parent when Christ is the preeminent priority. I'm a better pastor when Christ is the preeminent priority. I'm a better boss when Christ is the preeminent priority. I'm a better follower when Christ is the preeminent priority. But when he is not, everything starts lacking. Momentum, gone. Distance, felt. All because I have a priority issue. So is it not interesting then that Jesus would say, if you in the crowd want to come after me, you don't want to watch, but you want to be near, you want to be close, you want to get in the game, be active. It starts by daily checking the priority of your focus and affection. Get the priority right, everything else gets easy. Get the priority wrong, everything's difficult. So the call is, you must become second. You must lay aside your selfish ways. Second part, take up your cross daily. How offensive is that? Josephus, a Roman historian, said that you should not even, as a civilized Roman citizen, speak of the cross. Civilized Romans don't even talk about it. If a woman were to be crucified, they believe that kind of pain, obviously they have been in the room of childbirth, but uh, staying on the point, uh, they believe that kind of pain should not be seen on a woman's face. So they would crucify, in the rare case that a woman was crucified, they would crucify her facing the cross so no one would see her. It's the most brutal of ways to die. Rome was a brutal culture. It's how they kept their thumb on everything, though they had no ability to travel by air. Boat travel was very sketchy. I mean, you end up in different places. Ask the pilgrims. Like, it's like, how did we get here? I mean, wind. <laughs> the sovereignty of God. I mean, like, 
Where are you going? We don't know. When will you get there? When we hit land. I mean, like, that's the way it's going to work. Will you dive scurvy? Maybe. It's the Oregon Trail on boats. Anyway, you have died of dysentery. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just ADD. It's just that. Take up your cross. The most offensive thing in your society, reserved for the most greatest of offenders of the law set by Rome. Take up your cross. You see, what you would get is Rome would set a law, and the people who were the worst of the worst would be marched through the streets as a sign of their utter submission to the authority of the land, carrying the very instrument that they were going to die on moments later. It was a way of humiliation and absolute conquering. It was saying this rebel has been conquered by this authority. So Jesus says, you want me? Give up your selfish ways and be conquered by me. And that's what this looks like. It's this daily moment, not of humiliation, but of humility. Satan brings humiliation. God brings humility. The flesh brings humiliation. God brings humility where we take up our cross and we recognize, I have been conquered. (laughs) By what? By a grace (laughs) that is deep and wide by a love that is not contractual but covenantal, by a mercy that is new every... I have been conquered. Woo! I mean... That's why Paul says, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. He has conquered me. All of my past and all of my brokenness, all of my selfish ambition, all of my self-sufficiency, all of my denying my need for God. Like, he's conquered it. All of the wisdom I had, all of the, the goodness that I thought I carried, he's conquered it with something that is so much greater. So I take up my cross. I die to myself. I turn from my selfish ambition. He's the priority. And then he becomes this clear goal. When he's the priority, when we're surrendered to him, there's a whole lot of clarity that comes into life. There's a whole lot of ability to endure difficulty that comes into life. There's a whole lot of ability that comes to be thankful and grateful. Why? Because now you understand since he's the priority and since you've taken up your cross because you've been conquered by him, you now understand that it's all about following him. It's not about destinations. It's about journeys. (laughs) I've already gotten to where I want to get in the presence of God. And now that I'm in the presence of God, I'm going wherever the presence of God leads with no agenda. So send me to Greer. Send me to Poland. Send me into a place of peace or send me into a place of persecution. Because my treasure, my joy, (laughs) the one I want, is with me on the narrow way. You want to launch? You want to make a difference? Give up your selfish way of living. 
It's not anti-stuff, but it's open-handed with all stuff. You can have it all, Lord. We just built a house. It's a beautiful home. You can have it. You can have it. You've economically allowed my family to prosper. But we're not holding tight to the prospering economically. We, we are holding tight to you and we're saying, God, you, you can have it. The future of this church, you can have it. Where you send people and when you send them, you can have it. <laughs> You're the priority. You're preeminent. You have conquered us. So it's our joy and delight every single day to take up our cross, humbling ourselves in dependency upon you and saying, we need you. get what you're getting here? You're going to lose this life that you had before you met him, but you, you get what you're getting, right? This life that you had is a vapor. And losing it, Luke 9, 24, you're going to get something that is greater a life than you would ever have lived with all of the money that you could have ever have found and earned. And it won't be taken away in last breath. No, no, no. This is but a moment. You get Jesus now, and then it ends, and you get him where faith and hope are done away with because you don't need faith and hope anymore because you can see him. And all you have is love in the presence of God. Oh, man, I want to go to heaven. Come on. So, so, so for the group of you that are like, but I have a lot. <laughs> we worked hard for that. How do we give it up? Like, 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 we, that's a decade. That's our entire 20s and 30s. Like, like, that's our legacy. For those of you that are there, I want to remind you of the privilege of being his follower. He didn't have to say, follow me, but he looked at you and said, come on. It's a privilege. He looked at Peter and Andrew and said, follow me. They ditched their nets. He looked at the sons of Zeb and said, follow me. They ditched their fishing business. He looked at Matthew, the tax collector, and said, follow me. He left all of the shame and all of the ostracization that came with his background and his work and left all the riches that came with it and followed him. I mean, you now hear the same words that Matthew and Peter and Andrew heard follow me and you get to do that why aren't you running in repentance to the altar for underestimating the value of it why, why are you continuing to stay on the launch pad when the spirit of God intends to launch you into fruitful ministry and living that you never could have experienced apart from him if you need to give your life to Jesus the altar's here. You will bow today or on the last day. It'll be too late then, but it is not too late now. <laughs> we invite you to bow and surrender. 
declaring your dependency on Him. If you need prayer, we invite you to receive prayer. We want to respond to what the Lord's doing in the room. You move as the Lord leads. Let's stand, let's sing. What a Savior.